I'm killing it. I, I, I bought a tape on how to yodel. Really? And I did practice for a really long time. And my boyfriend was like, you're not doing it right. Every time we'd hear because I'd be like, okay, I'm yodeling in front of you. <laughs> oh, my God. This is classic. I feel like I just, I've known you for years, four years, five, five years, years. And I've seen you go through various phases of things you were get you know, bonsai class. Yeah. Like yep, 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 yep. various, various activities. Like I should have assumed it's been a lifelong pursuit. Yeah. I mean, I have my interest. I have my long term interest and then I have my short interest, like little things where I'm just like, I'm going to try out the, just a party trick, mind you, like something like that. I just you wanna... yodeling was something that you were planning on doing at parties. I was going to pull that shit out. I was going to be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like people, I just thought that would be fun. Yeah. I it... dated a guy once who was, got, who got into throat singing. And he was practicing that different, a lot. Different, different, different. But he did it a lot. Was it good? I thought it was kind of impressive, but I was in love. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. You get blinded by that shit. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to get someone. I'm trying to get someone that loves me so much that I can do yodeling <laughs> and throat uh, singing, and that is the response. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's see. Okay. Wait. Um. Welcome to Fascism Podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I want to just say. Wow. Wow. The world right now. Yeah. Wow. It's the world. I just I feel like we have to note that. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. It's heavy. It's like, what? Yeah. Uh, I feel like I, I found myself feeling like I was virtual signaling this weekend because I was like, after the march, I was like carrying around the poster and stuff and I felt kind of goofy, but I, <laughs> but I like ended up passing by a bunch of people who asked me when marches were and everyone was like, you know, giving, like showing their solidarity and it felt good to see that. And I also feel like, you know, at the march they were saying, tell your friends to come out. Like it really makes a difference and it does. Like one of our friends messaged just saying, oh, like there's a rally. And it's like, I don't know for sure that I would have gone if she wouldn't have sent that message or reminder. And it's like, we need to all show up and get out there and like, maybe in the comment, maybe in our, the episode description, we can put some abortion funds to donate to yeah yes i would yeah i'm sure everybody already knows them but yes let's do that i also just want to say like we should be a little more angrier i that's what i've kind of like when i went to the rally i was like first off i had a lot of opinions about how the rally went Mm. i was like too many speakers Mm. okay so i want to if if you're holding rallies two to three speakers tops okay under 10 minutes and then there needs to be music oh yeah was there no music in it there were people playing drums every once in a while to like to the sound, but the vibe, it just, it, it felt too somber and too sad. It felt like a funeral. It felt mm. like we were remembering the dead, which is kind of what we are doing. But it's just like, when I left, I was like, did we just come out of a funeral? That's what it felt like. And not to say, I mean, like, there's just a different experience from the George Floyd protest versus... Abor- the uh, abortion protests that we're seeing and because they're issue they're intersectional of course but they are they create different emotional reactions mm. 
And I I just want everybody to like get a little bit more pissed. I need I need to because that's what's gonna fire us to burn some shit down. Yeah. Like, and I feel like right now we're just grieving and mourning. And I I also am like, why are we act like this? I'm trying to understand why our reaction is to be more graceful about this hmm. versus why aren't we rioting? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, be, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I. I. don't know the answer either. But there is something there, and I. want to. I want to be, be like because we're women. Yeah, they're definitely like the first rally that I went to. People like some of the speakers were really. I don't. I don't know. It's like I want to find a nice way to say it, but honestly, they just were bad. It was like you know they just hadn't thought about what they were going to say. Yeah. It was just not as well organized as the one at the federal building. But yeah, um, the first person who spoke was good and. It sounded like, yeah, like the a main thing that they're trying to do is get you angry. It's like people who know about organizing, like know what you need to do. And you really do have to like rally. Like anger is an emotion that like inspires action, not always good actions. Yeah, but you're, but, you're absolutely correct. Whereas sadness is like a, a retreat almost. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. there is there needs to be both. Right. And there needs to be reflection and like uh, like some kind of violence, honestly. Like. And it, I was just like, Shh, God, I mean, whatever. I don't want to incite violence, but I do, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, like, anger is, is going to – is has stim, stimulated me in a way that's keep me going. And when I go to therapy and I feel like they're all – like, I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I feel like all they're trying to do is get rid of my anger. Mm. And I'm like, I can't – this is fueling my fire. Mm. And if I don't keep this anger, there's not going to be enough change. The reason I unionized was because I was so fucking angry. Mm-hmm. With, like and my coworkers align. Like we weren't like, oh, it'd be cute to unionize. No, it's because we were fueled by this rage. Yeah, it like it's hard to make change when you're comfortable, and anger kind of like shakes you out of that comfort zone. Exactly. Um, but hey, we're fascism. We're a fascism podcast. We yeah talk about art and fashion as a way to examine culture and have a good time. Yeah, we. Sometimes we get together, we try to blend our brains. Um, I like to think that we read things to set roots of thoughts that we've already had. And then we get together and we grow a whole garden. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's kind of the kind of podcast where we don't know shit either, but we do a lot. We just devote a stupid amount of time to reading every week so that we can tell you about the ways that fashion matters and intersects with art and culture and, you know, material cycles and just shit that gets us really juiced. Um, Yeah, exactly. We're basically the cliff notes of art, culture, and uh, fashion. So you're not going to get it all, but you are going to get the points that we thought were important. Right. We're not like a bodega in that we don't have everything you need here, but we are an essential part of your errands run. What would you say? We're like a newsstand? Mm, that feels a little too on the nose. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're like, oh, maybe we're like the pasta shop where you go to get the fresh pasta and it's like you can't get it anywhere else. And there's there's different kinds of pasta, but it's all pasta and it's just made from scratch and so good. Yeah. It, yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> or I was thinking maybe you're like the Polish or the Polish uh, stand oh. where you can only get the Polish shit. Uh-huh. You can only get the shit that is coming from our brains, filtered through our lens. Uh, you know, we 
yeah, through our very socialist leaning lens. Yeah, and through the like topics on fashion and if that interests you. And I do feel like we all are kind of intrigued, but we're like, where do you even start? I still don't even know. We're just going through things that we find interesting. And today we're talking about Anna Wintour, part two. But before we do that, Hope, what's trending? Um, Trending for me is post-party depression. Um, I feel sad pretty much every time I go to a party afterwards. It's like either I'm sad that it's over or I just... Did I say this last week? You did, but it's trending for you. So. It's still trending, I guess. <laughs> uh, we had, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we had a housewarming party last night and... Um, it's funny because I like I posted a lot as I was getting ready for the party, like of the prep, and then I didn't post anything like during, which I guess is like the signal of uh, people can just assume it was bustling and vibrant. And that's why I was like too in the moment to to record anything. I mean, Brian and I really spent the whole day cleaning because usually our house is very dirty. I made like special huge ice cubes for the punch. Oh, they and, were like, so beautiful. It was like probably... It was a work of art, it, honestly. Thank you. Um, it was also Pride weekends and where I live is very close to the action. So there was just like a lot. It felt like a very... It felt like everyone was partying yesterday. I mean, I think they were. Yeah. Um, but it's just the kind of thing where I'm like, yeah, I mean, I think it's also called being hungover. It's like, it's actually, it's like a physiological, I like, I, I consumed a lot of depressants. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's true. Uh, I also want to state that um, it was just funny because it was pride and I, we, I came over your house to celebrate two straights moving in together. <laughs> I know. I really appreciate you for like doing that and coming over even though. Oh, I mean, of course I was always going to do that. I also like on the way here, got literally, like, cut off by the Dyke March. Like, I was on my way to cross the street, and I couldn't because the Dyke March had started, which I love. I was here for it. I was, like, very into it. And then I saw my friends, and they were like, come on. And I was just what? like, M, my coworker, my former coworker. And I they grabbed me, and, like, I was like, I can't because I had a bag full of shit. And – they were like, you're homophobic for not joining. And I was like, I know, but I got to go. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> we did go out afterwards, though. Jackie and I and a few other people went to, I guess, yeah, like we did some pride celebrations, but at a at a straight bar. Right? No, you kept on saying unicorn was a straight bar, but it's, it's not, though. It's a queer, I mean, like the name unicorn itself means. Right, right, right. You were saying the that. third The third person in a relationship. Right, right. That's like, uh you know they're very rare to find that's why they're called a unicorn yeah actually someone i know was um <laughs> on the internet i knew that uh right like looking to be a unicorn and it sounded like it was a really great position to be in like people invited her over and like cooked her dinner and it's like dude imagine getting imagine getting wooed by a man but with the thoughtfulness and like party planning abilities of a woman combined I, I'm very into it. I, I, I am into that idea. I just don't know how it doesn't get complicated. But it doesn't matter. I, I'm not doing it. But I do want to fuck everybody. I don't know. Well, that's an efficient way to go about it. I, I, exactly. So I'm just like, yeah, that's 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 the nice part. But do you have to have a constant threesomes or can you have I'm, – I'm sure – I don't know. What are the rules? I feel like you have to lay out things and that, that being that vulnerable where I'm like, okay, well, 
can we have sex together and separate? Like, right. Well, I feel like all of those kinds of like non-traditional relationship styles do require a lot of communication and that, so that's why this person, they were saying that anytime they're dating from now on, they want to go on the field, which is like for um, polyamorous relationships because everyone on there is like really communicative. Right. It's like, instead of like having guys on hinge who are like pretending they want a relationship that they just want to fuck, it's like everyone's just really forthright and they're like, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this. It's like. Yeah, because you're building out your own roles. So you have to have those conversations because they're alternative. Or maybe people feel less like they need to deceive people because whatever. There's just more honesty. There's yeah. just more honesty. But yeah. anyway, what's trending for you? Um, Hatred for men, I think. Really. It's exceptional. Like just everything is really hitting the fan i just like look at men want to spit on their face if i mean i know we're assuming genders by looking at but you can tell what it uh usually who a cis hetero white man is especially if they're very broy looking oh my god um but nonetheless uh you know she persisted (laughs) i have to deal with the fact that men are here um but i'm just yeah god just everything happens and it just feels like I don't know where to put the rage you know I don't know where to put this anger I don't know what to do and I don't know like it just there was a quote by uh I forgot Christopher something he's like it's really simple of how to get rid of poverty and he said very simple idea and the empowerment of women and I was just like god Damn it, he's right. And it's not just like women. It's like the women are the the oppressed out of the binary. So, But it's it's like everybody that's been oppressed by the binary. So if there was just equal equality, there would literally be no poverty. There would literally be health care. It's just very hard not to be angry right now. And I – Yeah, I mean it's like by definition poverty is created by – like the subjugation of groups of people in order to like make certain people rich. The subjugation of people for capitalism so that some can accumulate wealth. And if like if you have equality, you, you there's no one to subjugate. And so there's no one to right. enslave or, you know, have like in an, an indentured servitude situation. Is that making sense? No, that's totally making sense. I mean, we're not all free. I'm just basically repeating what you said. (laughs) I mean, you're just, yeah. I mean, that's how conversations work sometimes. You know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta like, yeah, I'm just like really, I don't, I want to throw things at the Supreme Court justice's face and especially the women, the one woman, what's her fucking Amy? What's her name? Pick me. Am I right? Anyways. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) getting, that's letting her off too easy, but I do, I I like it though. It's like. She's also part of a cult. I don't know if you know that. Uh, Fundy Friday kind of deep like she whatever we can talk about this off air but she's done some deep research on it and yeah she's part of a cult anyways yeah so I'm just like really concerned and trying to be trying to date in this climate's really hard I'm I'm like um, you know again I still have the ick for every single man and then sometimes I have sex with them and I'm like fuck that was you know I get confused you know yeah, I mean, it's not the weirdest kink. <laughs> it might be though. It might be. I do remember my coworker was like, "Why do you, then? Why do you keep fucking 
white men. And I was like, that, that is why I, sh- I should be going to therapy. Like, what, a, what is up with that? Why do I hate the, like, the, the, this type? And yet here I am trying to fuck them. And Jacqueline Novak, who's a fantastic comedian, talks about it. And she's just like, I hate that I pine for the peen because, I mean, it's like, does she even read? And I, I like love that. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I feel like I might as well be a, you know, honky tonky uh, person that can't read. What is it called? A person that can't read. I can't even, I don't even know Illiterate. the word. <laughs> Literate. For how I pine for it sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's complicated. You can still love men. I mean, not, hashtag not all men. But I mean, like, I'm just saying, I think in the stat, the reason we are the way we are right now, it's not like I'm saying there's good ones and bad ones. It's like we're all, we're all affected by, I don't know, we're all racist, we're all sexist. Like, yeah. we all have like these things that we need to eradicate. It's like, but yeah, as a general force in the world, men are just the worst. Like, there yeah. was, did you ever read Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit? Um, I know that's when, where the term mansplaining was coined, but other than that, no. There's a chapter on it that basically just goes into statistics on rape and like, mm. mur- like murders of women and stuff. And at the time reading it, I was like, why did she have to say all this? But the thing is, it's like, I feel like the argument there or like the point there is like objectively men are harmful to women. Yeah. Statistically... And like I got in a not an argument. What's it? Go ahead. Just harmful to people. I mean, like right, right. But go on. I was. Someone made a joke about me like beating Brian or something, and I was like, "Isn't it funny that that's like only funny?" Because yeah, like to say that way versus the other. And this one person who I won't name was there and was like, "Well, actually, that's how I choose my friends: is the people who would think both situations are equally funny." That's a weird thing to say. Because they think, I think that they're stuck in the equality versus equity mindset. Like they just don't understand like. Double standards. I think like, yeah. Right. They're like, we should treat men the same way we treat women. It's like, okay, but like femicide is like a legitimate cause of death. Like women are, women have to be afraid of men. Like it's rational to be afraid of men because they kill us. Also, there's like colonialism, which runs very deep in generational like pain and with every fucking race and every like everybody's embodying colonialism in some way so which is just like i mean even if you haven't experienced violence from men it's somewhere in your mm-hmm. lineage lineage right. like it's like, like bunnies like, learn to run away from wolves yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly well this is a fun episode i know i know <laughs> well, now let's talk about vogue Wait, I was going to say one more thing, but I, I – Oh, it, like when you said – that was – when I said that was a weird thing, it, it, I had a flashback from last night when I came up to the – what do you call that guy? The guy that was standing in front of the, the club – the club. Oh, the security? The security. I was just like, hey, uh, can my friend poop? And he was like, that was a weird thing to say. And I was like – I don't feel like that was a weird thing to say, but I guess the word poop is a hard, it's a, it's got P, it's got two O's and another P. It's a weird word. Oh, you think it's just like a... I think it's, the concept of poop is gross, but I also think the word itself is a weird word. But anyways. Yeah, fair. Uh, it was funny because we were like five people behind. It was like, but she really, she was in pain. Yeah, I was worried for her. So, and I mean, I've been there, you know, I relate. 
IBS queen over here. So I was just like, this lady, I mean, like, the fact that she was being patient was blowing my mind because I would have not been able to. I can't. When they have to go, it's, it's I have literally five seconds to get to a toilet. But like, this is why I'm near a toilet. That's why I can't go camping anymore. I, I mean, like, it's not fun. I mean, anyway, so, like, being near a toilet, I, there's a whole process. So I just felt for her, and I was like, my friend needs to poo. <laughs> Anyways, he was disturbed by that. Um, that's all. Um, okay, well, so today is a two-parter. This is our first two-part episode. It's about the biography Anna by Amy O'Dell. We started last episode going through her early life and her early career. Um, so highly recommend first listening to that episode, but we're going to pick right where we left off. Yeah, we recapped last time with her going over to British Vogue. And one thing we didn't mention was right before that she met Andre Leon Talley. And we also have an episode on his memoir. And the, the author, Amy O'Dell, clearly read his memoir. She read like, I'm sure so many in order to write this book. But so sometimes she references stories in there that are that like cut came from his memoir. But anyway, so they meet and they become kind of like fast friends. Yeah, they work really well together. And um, I think Bestie's in the only way that uh, Anna can emote. Yeah, she gets named editor in chief of British Vogue. And I didn't really like have much of a perception of what British Vogue was or how it was different than American Vogue. But the way they painted a picture, I feel like I really got it of like, it was all like chateaus and horses. Yeah, they, yeah, it's exactly what you think of when you think of like royalty and London. It's like very yuppie aesthetic, very Princess D probably, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I assume polo. Is that, is that what you said? I said all chateaus and horses. Yeah. Yeah, polo. <laughs> but like now British Vogue is very more, it's not like that anymore. Oh, really? Um, because the editor-in-chief is very maximalist and that is – I don't know if you watched the TikTok, but there was a TikTok, I think that Amy O'Dell did, I, I'm almost positive, and talking about how, well, that's why Beyonce picked British Vogue to be on the cover of when they released the song versus the American Vogue. Oh, why is that? It's because they're more maximalist in style. Oh. And if you look at the British Vogue cover, it is very like, it's red, it's black, it's very, what would I say, sexy and indulgent and... American Vogue is very minimalist, kind of washed out look. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's – I want to learn more. Uh, you just sent me that picture of Sydney Sweeney on the cover of Vogue Hong Kong, which uh, was super cool. And I think it was – fuck. She has the substack called I Love Mess. I think it's something Kirkpatrick. But they were saying that they were, like, happy to see Sydney Sweeney being featured on a cover where it's not just, like, her tits being featured. Not that, like, if there's anything wrong with, like – whatever playing those up but like and getting to see her in a really like high fashion context was very refreshing those pictures were super cool now those pictures were really cool but this is the year of 1985 this is before beyonce i mean she was existing but she was a wee little baby about 10 i don't know how old she is but yeah and anna came in to the british vogue and became chief of editor and it was hard for her because she had left her entire family and including her husband and, and her kids. They were still in New York. Oh, the kids were in New York? Yeah, they were still in New York. And she would come visit every six months. Six? No, it must have been six weeks. There's <sighs> no was, way. It was every two. It was twice a week where the, at least Vogue paid for it. Okay. 
in her contract. I'm sure she probably visited more than that. But it was very hard for her. I mean, she wants to run American Vogue. She knows it. I think everyone knows it. And she comes in. And it seems like a lot of editors-in-chief do this when they come in. I mean, you're coming in with your vision. You Oftentimes, you bring your own people with you. She tried to get Andre Leon Talley to go with her, but he said no. And she fires a lot of people. And I think this is a big part of where her reputation comes from. Like, there, it was all over the headlines at the time. Nuclear winter, winter of our discontent. Like, just, just stories about how she was, yeah, just like wrecking house. Yeah, it's she was completely trying to tra- change British Vogue. She was like firing everybody, which, you know, I get it. Um, but honestly, I mean, like, it needed to happen. And Grace Cottington is one of the few people that isn't fired because she, Grace Cottington is a genius. Like, truly, honestly, like, she was a model before she was a uh, editor. So I think she knows the world a little bit more intimately. But she also is just like a lot, like knows fashion in and out. And to not have her by her side would be like a dumb move on Anna's part. Um, She's also pregnant at this time. Anna? Yeah. Yeah. So and there's rumors during this time that she was induced in order to give birth on a timeline, which is just super sexist. It's like basically like painting this picture of like, She's so focused on her career that she even was induced on a timeline, which I'm sure is like would be way less shocking now. But I just feel like the way we talk, it's like that that's like somehow something to look down on. Yeah, but it, I, it is kind of weird how the timing of that, of the birth happens. Why? Because she had a baby and then like the next week later, she was leaving British Vogue. Mm. So there was a weird, it was a weird time where she was like, gave birth took literally a week off and then came in looking very nice being like i'm quitting oh i'm leaving and i'm like got a week but before she quits she a lot of the changes like we said are happening she is like wiping out the whole house one thing that i highlighted was like in the book having said just a couple years earlier that she was tired of fashion photos of girls running down the street that's exactly what anna was asking for now motion models in the street looking as if they were off to work uh s- someone recalled it was an image of womanhood cast very much in the mold of anna always moving never slowing down thoroughly devoted to her career and her own appearance it's just funny that is just funny to me what that she went back on it or just she, yeah that she went back on it because it's like I'm what was her why why is she suddenly for that yeah I think she just wants to make anything different like when she comes in her only way of making things pivot is to make it look like New York I mean for for Britain everybody was like not vibing with her mostly because she had worked in the New York environment which is very fast-paced and pretty much the reason I don't live in New York right now is because I would hate to work as much as everybody else works and She's just, like, expecting a lot from a lot of people. And in Britain at that time, I mean, and it's probably still now in London, no no one really worked that hard and had these high expectations that Anna was asking for. Right. She want, she came in and she wanted British Vogue to be like American Vogue. She wanted it to be sexy. And, yeah, she changed a lot of things there. And I think her way to pivot was something that she knew was successful, had done well in right. New York. Right. So that's You probably- don't go straight to the, like, the next thing, you yeah. know, like you do something palatable. Something that you are, are no works. Right, right. Um, is what I'm assuming. And, and, but she would probably, like once she becomes editor-in-chief, she kind of tries to make a transition there too of something different. So I think she's also just trying to 
create a visual of how it looks underneath her at every time she gains power in some capacity. She is very focused on photos and like she's way more focused on photos than like the copy for the magazine. She's always like, yeah, that's her most important thing. Um, So British Vogue has a lot less money than American Vogue, but uh, nevertheless, Anna came in. She had a desk designed by some Alan Buschbaum, an architect who had renovated her New York townhouse. The desk was a long, lean affair with playful legs reminiscent of the fins of a 1950s Cadillac made of sandblasted ebonized mahogany with an insert of black patinated steel. I'm just like, that was a lot of detail. That's a lot of words. That's like, didn't make any sense. Right. How else are you going to describe fashion, I guess? Well, that's about a desk, though. (laughs) That's about the desk that she brought into her outfit. That's funny, because I took that as like, I don't know what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she just comes in and pimps out her office, basically. Are we, stay, are we still saying pimp? Still saying pimp? We can say pimp, I think, until someone tells us we can't, but I don't see there's anything else wrong with pimp out, personally. Um, and she also is struggling. Okay, like we said, she's struggling. She doesn't have a huge, a big social circle in London. She kind of hates everybody. I mean, she's just not very social. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's a workaholic, but uh, she would go to every Saturday to visit her her favorite shoe designer, a Milano Blanc. How do you say his name? Manolo Blahnik. How? That's haven't you not watched, how it's written. Haven't you watched Sex in the City? I have, and I'm, I, this is my problem. I can't, I can hear people say things, but it's just hard. It's like yeah. why I'm not good at languages. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How do you say it again? Manolo Blahnik. That is not how it's written. I just want everybody to know that. Okay. Milano Blahnik. And she went with her shop with her kid, Charlie. So I guess her kids were here. Yeah. I feel like there's like back and forth. There's not, it's not like super clear because I mean, why would you go into the details of the like who has who? But she does have Charlie who knocked over all the displays. Um, this wasn't the only quality time she had with her son. She told an interview in 1986, Sundays I spend the whole day with him. So she's, this is her first kid. She's about to have her second kid. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I just thought it was an interesting little tidbit that she would go over every Saturday to Milano yeah. Blahnik and, and Andre Leon Talley was really close with him too. Yeah. And even moved into his house. Yeah. Uh Andre Leontelli also comes and visits her fairly regularly and he and she like lets him come work in the space. And he has this like big presence in the office where like I think people know that he still has an influence on Anna. And so it almost feels like in a way he works there. I think she uses Andre because he is knowledgeable of fashion. Way more than I think she is, honestly. Mm-hmm. And he's creative. Mm-hmm. And so, and he's literally had to make nothing out of, something out of nothing. And I think she understands that. And I don't like how she, like, uses him. I don't know. I mean, he, I don't think he has the willpower to actually be, be as focused as he needs to be to be a CEO or, like, editor-in-chief. But I do think she leans on him in a way that's, like, manipulative and not as, not as, like, giving him as credit as yeah. he de- deserves. It showcases how much she actually utilizes him. I think that doesn't even really pay him. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like, Yeah. Um, she knows right now that London Publishing was just like the minor league. She's very aware She's what this move is for her. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard, it's hard to imagine that she didn't worry about being so removed from New York and the apex of media. I'm sure she was. But like, and she stayed very much in contact with Lieberman and Newhouse, mm-hmm. who are the Condé Nast of, of America, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but Lieberman also seems to be making an effort to keep tabs on her as both his mentee and the future fashion leader of Condé Nast. So this move was a chessboard move. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's gunning for editor-in-chief of Vogue. And British Vogue starts to do well, and she's developing relationships with designers there just like she had in the U.S. where she's like really working with them on their clothing. Like she'll tell them, take inches off your hemline or like do this. And so she is influencing the clothes that they're designing. Um, And then Grace Coddington leaves to go work for Calvin Klein in in New York. Yeah. And Anna knows at this point, I mean, she's always planning to come back to New York, right? So she did fully intend to move back to New York after having her baby. Like that was always part of the plan. And I think that's why people think that she was induced. Mm. Um, She probably just wanted to get the fuck out of London. I don't know. And it's possible she planted rumors of her relocation to the the press to make Newhouse consider the risk of losing her to a rival, in turn prompting him to take drastic measures to make her happy. Hmm. So at this point, they offer her a position at House and Garden, which is back in New York. And it's also a Condé Nast uh, publication, Mm -hmm. which is just a funny place to put her, honestly. I guess it's like you can be like an engineer for like a lot of different tech companies and it's like, yeah, I guess at one tech company you're doing ride sharing versus one company you're doing something else and it's like you're still an engineer and it's like, but I, just, I guess for whatever reason I think of an editor-in-chief as needing to have such intimate knowledge of the subject matter that they wouldn't switch from fashion to homes. But it's like close enough. She barely stays there that long. Yeah, it's very quick. She rolls in. She does the same thing, fires people, pisses people off. Change it's her it. move. Yeah. Take note if you want to become a hashtag boss girl, a girl boss. But I don't want you to. But, you know, if you do, yeah. there you go. Just fire everybody. Right. And uh, she changes the name to just HG. And she adds a lot of fashion into the magazine. People start calling it house and garment or vanity chair, which I like. I think vanity chair is a funny one. They actually had to set up like an 800 number for people to call and complain. Yep. And I mean, everybody pretty much knew she was getting from Rebella's editor-in-chief job at this point. Yeah, and I think the one maybe thing that she did while she was there that's significant is like, I think it sounded like she kind of starts the whole like voyeuristic looks into private spaces of the rich and famous, like where it's like we, it's so common now where it's like, I'm rich, here's my house, look at all these pictures of my house, whereas before House and Garden was more like um, book instruction booklets for like how to arrange living room furniture and stuff like that, so. I think that's a little bit interesting. I, I want to know what the old school one, if I could find, find out tips and tricks. I, I just want to read some. I love any tips and tricks around how, how it's like it's like the sick uh, algorithm has taught me how to be like a stay at home wife. And I just I do enjoy tips and tricks about how to keep the house clean. And yeah. I love like uh, house party tips and tricks. Like, oh, yeah. And she she does like you, you're right that she is uh, inviting people into people's homes and like pushing extravagance i guess like the idea of like garden parties is big and she hires like this guy robert isabel who's like a party planner to basically design out some of the shoots and a lot of the inspiration is by like parisian gardens because anna loves a parisian garden which i don't know what the difference is that just a traditional garden i would think london gardens and parisian aren't that different oh interesting we should know this we should landscape architects over here you know what i was thinking recently also you know how like boomer women 
are obsessed with Italy and France. Yes. Do you think that our version of that when we're older is going to be like being obsessed with Scandinavia and everyone's going to be like, oh my God, my mom, she's like so obsessed with Scandinavia. Yeah, maybe. I am obsessed with like uh, socialism, you know, so. And like Scandinavian design is really hot right now. Mm -hmm. And like. I do love Scan design. Well, only time will tell. We'll see. Yeah. That'd be hilarious. You heard it here first, people. Um. But something that she says, and I think I just think this is a good tidbit. I just want to share Anna's insight here. She said, "You know, you have a successful party when the guests never have to wonder where they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to be doing next." So scattered throughout the space were Anna's beautiful new staff meant to usher guests down the stairs to dinner area, like the models of in her made-over magazine serve as ornamentation. It was said. Nancy Novograd, the editor from Clarkson Potter, don't know what that is, who had been recruited by Anna to be a deputy at HG, what ex- Lieberman expected, when Novograd later hired someone he didn't find attractive, he scolded her for it. So it was just like, it, that, that's just kind of interesting. I like the part, the only part I like about that is her being like guiding people to have a good party. Everybody needs to have a place and she has a place for everybody to stand and everybody looks gorgeous right right the amount of attention she puts into like the guest list and stuff is really something else i think we'll get to that more at some point but um yeah we're getting to uh the coup the coup of of grace mirabella yep who is at this time the editor-in-chief of vogue and the only way she discovers that she's no longer the editor-in-chief of vogue is when her husband calls her and tells her that he saw the news and has she heard anything about it this is in about 1988 yeah, uh, new Cy Newhouse and Alex Lieberman, they were worried about the threat of L, and Mirabella was indecisive. She she also wasn't tight with Newhouse, so I guess that was kind of like their reasoning for getting, for getting her out of there. But yeah, basically, they don't tell her. It's like, th- these people need an HR department. They just, like, they don't tell her that she's being fired. They're just like, the, the news breaks, and that's how she finds so out. I know, it's so fucking weird and catty, and I don't get it. And that's what, but this is what, union. They need a fucking union. Not that, not that upper management would ever have a union because that's not how that works. Uh, but like, yeah, you're right. This is just messy. And it, it keeps happening. Yeah. And just so y'all know, Mirabella had also off-put Virlin at the time, like very similarly. Like Virlin didn't know that she was being replaced except for when she heard it in the media. It's just how they do it. And so Anna brings Grace Coddington with her. Everything happens like at lightning pace. She also brings Andre Leon Talley and she tells Linda Rice, the, the like finance queen, I don't know, that her job is to control Talley's spending. So this is the first we hear that he is considered not good with money, though she does the same shit. Yeah. I think it's just because he's not editor-in-chief and he can't do – he shouldn't be able to do whatever he wants. But it's like when she was just a regular editor, like at Viva, it's yeah. like she was pulling that shit. She was going to Jamaica and like spending a shit ton of money and like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why at this point they're even on a budget. Is media dying yet? No. It's 19 it – is, it is peak. So he, there is no reason to, to put him on a budget, but I'm sure he, I'm sure he loves to. He he. There is a quote in uh, the trailer for the September issue where he goes, "There's a famine of beauty," and I was just like, Jesus Christ, to be like, I just could see he's very extra in the sense that he probably spins and like I don't know, I I which I love. He seems yeah, he's a cr- a true creative and that like he gets away from himself sometimes. 
Yeah. And so I'm sure he's spending millions. He could easily spend millions of dollars. Well, and he was hanging out with Carl Lagerfeld. So he was using his like wash dry service. He was like, you know, lots of cars to and from places. It's like sounds so nice. Yeah, but he doesn't have a family to pay for all of it. It's all Vogue paying for it. So which is where I think she's like, you, you can't spend like, which is fucked up. Like, yeah. In the news, they call it winter chill uh, or or failing upwards, I guess, saying that like she keeps failing at these. I mean, because, yeah, she didn't do a great job or like it's not like she, with like House Garden. So people are like, oh, you failed there. Then you get a promotion, whatever. There's also rumors that she had an affair with Cy Newhouse, which I don't think were true. I don't think so either. It really didn't sound like it. It doesn't really. I mean, yeah. At I least Amy doesn't think they did because the way she writes it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like, no, that's a silly rumor. But that's a rumor nonetheless that does exist. Yeah, and she like keeps it cool in the office. She basically tells people that they're not woke if she if they think she had written an affair in, in, you know, in so many words. Basically being like, if you think that's the only way that a woman can get to the top, then blah, blah, blah. And uh, yeah. It might be. No, maybe. No. I don't know. I just feel like men so don't believe in women unless they've decided to fuck them. It's like either fuck someone or already be rich. Exactly. Uh, so she did the second one. Um, and the, like she p- plays it cool in the office, but later admits that it did like strain her marriage. I mean, that sucks. Um, I do want to say, uh, going a little back on Mirabella, because it's like, why? Why is she being pushed out? You know, and uh, we've talked about it a little bit about how she like Lieberman was the face. But Mirabella's weakness had become really prominent in the, in the most recent years. Mm-hmm. And in 1987, right before Anna came in, Lieberman got really sick with prostate cancer and heart problems, and it kept him out of the office. Oh, right. And without his usual involvement, Vogue became, like, rudderless. What does that mean? Um, a rudder is something that's used to steer a boat, so I'm guessing it, like, didn't have a clear direction. Yeah. Staff filtered through the human resources department, exhausted by Marilyn's indecisiveness, complaining that the magazine had no direction. That makes sense. So, yeah, she's actually failing as a, as a manager. Like, just, like, you have to give people descriptions of what you want. And, like, Anna was very decisive, very much was, like, get things done, tell you what you need to do. So there was a, there was a stark difference in how they ran things. Yeah. And Lieberman even talked about, like, how Linda Rice worked as Lieberman's deputy. Mm-hmm. And she had talked about how... She was always shocked at what Grace didn't know and like Grace, but she, she was not the woman for the job. But she liked her, but she was just like, dude, she's just not good at what yeah. she's doing. Yeah. Um, which is not – to me, I'm like, well, that's Vogue's fault. For hiring her in the first place? Yeah. I mean, or not setting her up for success, not training her enough. Like, there needs to be some – train. like, you need to train your employees to be better. They're not – people aren't natural leaders, like, in a lot of ways. And, like, we have to, like, train people to be more mindful of what they're doing, how to organize. It's not just, like, something – capitalism was created by humans in the system, so, like, it's not easy to understand the rules. And if you aren't guided through it, you're not going to be set up for success. If you have any ADHD, which kind of sounds like she had, um, you need some instruction of how to, like – but so, but do you think that she could have been I mean it's it's like such a it's the only one person does that job. And like do you think she was the woman for the job? I I mean no. I mean like people like structure. Yeah. People want to know what they are doing with their time. 
I think there's a beauty in like letting people do whatever the fuck they want. And there's also like a, a painful thing. But I don't think Anna's for the job either. Well, I think like Mirabella worked in the 70s when it was about like workwear and like being like perf- like women wanting to be professional. And then it seems like she didn't like the 80s and like wasn't the right person to be doing that job in the 80s because it was like, you know, the aesthetic is a lot more bold and like out there and she just wasn't into it. Yeah, that's fair. That's also true. But she also was just bad at like managing people's time. She, managing time was a huge issue for her. And also just like managing people was a huge issue for her. And those two things could can be like at least delegated through the lens of like somebody training her on these these flaws. Not to say that she would be better at it, but at least she would have been supported in some capacity without having to like throw her out. Yeah. Like, there should have been some other steps taken, Totally, yeah. But yeah, they don't give a shit about that. They don't care about people's personal success. It's never about that. It's very confusing to me on, like, why they choose the people they choose and then how they go about it. Because it's just like, is anybody going to be successful unless they're bitchy and bossy? And, like, I guess that's just what they want, everybody wants. I mean, it seems like a role where being decisive is really helpful. Because you're literally, your job is to make decisions. It's more than just that, too, you know, like. Yeah, who knows? Either way, Anna came in there and uh, her first cover was the first time jeans ever appeared on Vogue. It was styled by Carlene Cerf de Dudziel, um, who said, I love to make shit look like gold, capiche? I just feel like anytime anyone adds capiche to the end of the sentence, it's just like, are we in like a 90s rom-com or something? It's a very, it's a comedy bit that I'm here for. Yeah. And honestly, we need to bring it back. Capiche? Yeah, I think I could get on board for that. Capiche? Yeah. And so editor-in-chief Anna is even scarier. Like she shows up for meetings and then leaves before people get to the meeting. Like she shows up so early for things. What? I was so confused by that sentence. What do you what do you mean she gets there but like how long like is she there at 7 a.m. when the meeting's supposed to be at 8? Basically, yeah. And then she's like, oops, sorry. That doesn't the, the meeting that's that's the meeting was at 8. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're actually wrong. Right. Like that's I don't understand. Right. Being early is just as bad as being late. Exactly. There's like if you're not there on the time that we all decide, what's the point of the meeting? Very, very strange behavior. And that's just like, is that a power move? Seems like it. It's like, yeah, you're supposed to just get there and wait for her or something. You're supposed to get there. What if you have other important meetings that she probably, I mean, I just can't imagine. Yeah. So she was also like interviewing wasn't going well. Um, People interviewing for jobs at Vogue didn't really get that far if they didn't look good, which was a huge thing for Anna. Anna screened every single person, every single person before hiring them just to like at their style. And when they found the perfect person who was about 25, okay, so they were looking for somebody, a human resource manager was having these issues to find a writer, and the fashion people who desperately wanted the job couldn't write, but the people who could write looked down on Vogue, which is interesting to me a little bit. Um, And when they found the perfect person who was about 25 pounds overweight, I hate this fucking story, who was 25 pounds overweight, human resources knew not to send her to Anna without a warning. Otherwise, Anna would see her almost instantly make up her mind and end the interviews. I want to like, I just want to scream when I hear this. So Anna was asked to give the woman at least two and a half minutes, which is not a lot of time. Anna did, and the person was hired. But the fat phobia. 
the deeply entrenched fat phobia. It's really bad. Yeah, reading this made me understand Andre Leon Talley's struggle even more. Yeah, he was just like, I, I'm sure it's, it's constant. It's constant. It's just like you have to be skinny to be part of this industry. Oh, my God. Matt was telling me about how Leah, Matt's our friend uh, of the pod, uh, about how Leah worked for, this is some good little goss, Patty Hearst's child, Grace Hearst, I think is her name, oh, okay. who was married to that Chris guy, I don't know, comedian. And she was working as a designer because Leah's in the fashion world and how the rich people that made money and do nothing were all talking about decisions that Leah was going to have to implement through her design. And Leah spoke up and said something, just said something. I'm not, nothing like, I don't think like, no, we can't do that. Nothing like this. I'm sure it was like a clarifying question or like a bringing up a reasonable concern. Or even agreeing with them. It, it, It didn't fucking matter. The manager looked at her and said, can you just not talk when we're talking like ever? So this is like, they're not mentioning those little details in here, but that's what's happening. Anna's definitely saying something like that. But as a designer, what the fuck? Are you not supposed to say ever? Like, you just go into work and never say a fucking peep? Like, what is this? What, you have to be skinny, never talk, and, like, still have enough money to, like, buy the bougiest clothes? And it, yeah, it's, I just wanted to give you a little Yeah, pause. extra, extra little piece of gossip. Um, she also, she does the Madonna cover, and Madonna herself is controversial at this time. She's just, like, seen as this, like, yeah. sexy, like, wow, whatever. Um, but also... Putting celebrities on the cover of Vogue at all is controversial at the time. Like they were putting models on covers. And so this is kind of like a switch. And they find that like, oh, like when you put an actress on the cover, you can do like a whole feature on them, like talk about their movies. So it like made for like more than just a cover. It was like a cover and like a feature story. She honestly kind of like piloted featuring actors and actresses That's on covers. Fascinating to me. Because celebrities, there's just a conversation about how celebrities have impacted the fashion world. They weren't always connected, really. Yeah. And they're still not. And sometimes, like, black artists are kept out of the fashion world. You know what I mean? Like, Cardi B yeah, is an example. I mean, like, now she's very involved. But it's just, like, it's just an interesting topic that I don't really know enough information about and how media is controlled and how but like the reason i think celebrities weren't really invited because celebrity like the idea of what a celebrity was really did change in the 80s Mm -hmm, too mm -hmm. like there was a shift yeah like in the shift from models being celebrities to then not really anymore yes the death of supermodels and yeah it is kind of just a fascinating of why what what is what does it mean to be celebrity how do you become like why celebrities exist? It's just through the lens of basically globally knowing who the person is, right? And then like media sources know things certain people are are gonna sell more. It's just very bizarre. Yeah, Nicki Minaj has complained that she's never been given a Vogue cover and is like such a trendsetter. Like, and that's the thing. It's like, what is a fashion icon? What makes someone a fashion icon? Like, so many people are setting trends and not getting credit because we're not featuring them. Like, because Vogue is racist and classist, and they won't feature someone like Nicki Minaj. Even though she is a celebrity. She is a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, it's again, it's like, what is a celebrity? I don't know. It's all fascinating to me. There's something that uh, I'm sure somebody's written a fucking huge essay about it. That's why I just want to get into it. Yeah, she's also like Anna, even though celebrities are becoming more of a thing on Vogue, she hates Los Angeles, which I think is a little fun little oh, tidbit. Yeah. 
And the fact that she even came around to celebrity covers because cultural culture was basically demanding it. Um, and she realized she couldn't stay behind. So she was like, I guess I'll let allow LA to come into the New York world. Um, and that's how that happened. She saw culture shifting. And that's not going to be the first time that she does that, where she's like, obviously, we need to make a, a transition into what people are asking for. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Anna parties a lot. Partying was part of the job. She always controlled the guest list, and she liked to, like, facilitate conversation, I guess, when it's not in the office, since she doesn't talk to anyone there. Uh, she would break couples up at parties, like, seat them in different seats. What do you think about that? I'm pro that. You know that – I know she got that from, like, some French book, dude. Like, because my boomer mentor woman would always talk about, like, switching up couples at parties because, like, flirting with – different people is very important to keep the relationship alive and she was like it's very french um so I, right it makes sense yeah I'm that. I'm very yeah i think so too i think we should definitely like not sit next to our partner and we should get a little jealous you know and i and even though i do sound like my boomer mentor i don't mind i'm like fine with that you know yeah yeah so she's very controlling she's very she's very much a perfectionist which i don't think she always was that's the thing i think she we got in this position and she finally could be fully controlling of this of situations. Anna had many checks in place to ensure that photographs came out the way she wanted them to. But ultimately, the only way for that to happen was for her to be the one looking at the pictures, not leaving final judgment calls up to anyone else. Anna was never on the set, but for cover shoots, she'd check in with 20 other people who were. She also reviewed photos somewhat in real time. If a cover shoot was in New York, a Polaroid of the subject would be rushed to her via taxi. Mm. If it was somewhere else, a Polaroid would be photocopied, scaled in a, in a pouch, and overnighted to her in a New York so she could provide feedback before the second day of shoot. And people began to note what she liked. She liked basically gardens, happiness, smile, sunlight, which is why a lot of the cover shoots happened in Los Angeles, even though she fucking hates Los Angeles. Um, anything else would pretty much be trashed. Dude, yeah, the Polaroid that gets, like, driven to her, that shit was crazy. It's, like, before computers. I know. I know. Everything, like, yeah, one of the most interesting things about this book was, like, a, a glimpse into the world of print media before digital stuff. I mean, the amount of money that goes into, like, film, all of its film photography and, like, yeah, in order for her to check on it, it's, like, literally has to be driven to her in a car. <laughs> in a taxi, yeah. yeah. And the Polaroid call out, it's, like, you know... It, but Polaroids were very useful at one point. And this is when Gwyneth Paltrow comes up. We talk We talk about, like, how she had four shoots. Um, yeah, that happened because she kept – Anna kept on saying no, 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 no to, like – Yeah, and it's, like, you would think because it's a celebrity that, that she would just appease them and be, like, oh, that's fine. I'm not going to waste her time. But, no, she would, like, demand reshoots. Yeah, one of the shoots, Anna said that Gwyneth looks like a girl in an old ivory soap commercial. That's why they didn't put it on the cover, which I thought was funny. I was, like, I feel like – your Vogue covers now look all like ivory soap cover, like commercials. And this is also interesting because she doesn't really showcase men. But I don't think Vogue was ever having covers of men. It, at least it's not mentioned. But Amy O'Dell definitely brings out that Anna's judgment of women in the 90s were exacting in a way she wasn't with men. She was fine with putting the Coen brothers inside but thought Susan Sarandon in her mid-30s was too old for the magazine. In the April 1993 issue, she featured a scruffy group of young, mostly male femme directors in casual clothing, looking nothing like supermodels because she liked that Vogue could crown them as the up-and-coming directors who mattered. Yeah, she's problematic, <laughs> I guess is like the fastest way to say it. Yeah, like she just like, 
she's part of the patriarchy. She is very involved in like supporting men's issues. And it shows just in the way that she like like she said wasn't showing Susan Sarandon because she thought she was too old, but will show a bunch of like young a group of young like white men because they're like up and coming directors. Yeah, everyone everyone has to be young and hot. Um, she also we start to see some of her like racist oversights. It says in one features meeting in early 1994, Anna shared an idea inspired by what she had been seeing on the runways. I want to do something about Asians. They're everywhere, she said. Vogue's covers featured only white faces in 1995 and 1996. Most actresses and models featured in the issues were white. Um, a lack of diversity in fashion magazines broadly received only scant amount of attention in the press. Um, you know, woke was decades away from entering the lexicon. Uh, in this case, Anna had noticed that Asian models had been appearing in a lot of runway shows, which was a new development in the predominantly white fashion industry. But the way Anna brought it up, it was as if an entire race of people was now in because fashion had decided it so, the way it might next season decide on chartreuse. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, Andre Leontali talks on this a little bit. So we talked about Tally having a reputation for spending a shit ton of money and Anna's really non-confrontational. It seems like the whole way Vogue is run is like, if you think someone's fucking up, you just don't tell them. But I guess Andre got fed up with not being assigned to run photo shoots and he quits. And the way Odell writes it is that like close colleagues found his exit rude. Like yeah. not everyone was was on his side. Yeah, because it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So why he and, and and that's clear on his book too. I was like, so why did you quit? You had a good income. You had all the things you want. He mentions in his m- memoir that it's because he just like wasn't given as much free, which is probably true. Like he wasn't allowed to like basically become a curator. Is what it sounded like he wanted to have more power of. It's like curating exhibits through Vogue mm. like at the Met yeah like at the Met was an example but like really anything so there was tons I'm sure of exhibits that were happening through Vogue and he wasn't like given that ability because Anna didn't believe he could do it was supposed to be what it was um and I can see both sides but I'm just also like Anna's fucking rude why is it why can't he be rude yeah it's all just dramatic man it's so much drama dude this is why don't go into the arts people it's like people have too much ego yeah it's a hundred i mean the fact that he was like there's a famine for beauty like just like that does show you the drop the level of drama we're talking about which i'm here for but from a side like i don't want to be involved in that because i do think my feelings would get hurt somehow so then in 1991, Anna goes on vacation with her family and her dad is just like in awe of her lifestyle. Like there's house cleaners that come to the vacation rental every day. And um, she streams faxes through a nearby sausage factory so that she can like... I know that that was funny. That was hilarious. I'm and just... like, yeah, they mentioned how like the guy that was running it felt like he was like close to like the fashion world right. because of it. Right, right. Which he a, was. Yeah, he gets a taste of it. Um. That is a weird, like, imagine just working at a factory and then suddenly Vogue prints are coming in. Right. Yeah. I just, like, it's so hard for me to fat, like to imagine that happening. It just seems otherworldly. It does. That chapter also talks about a lot about, like, all the assistants that are involved. Um, and 
There's a lot of assistants involved. <laughs> a lot of assistants, two to three at a time. They'd come at 7 a.m. to prepare for her arrival, including getting her latte ready and her blueberry muffin that she would eat like a small portion of. And they just like basically not heard or seen. She doesn't ever remember anybody's name until you've stuck around long enough. But she'd be like, you there, which again, labor rights issues. Yeah, not great. Uh, she tended to hire girls of privilege, and they were expected to dress the part, much like Devil Wears Prada, which we'll get more into that. Yeah. Um, and then the best part of being her assistant was getting to help out with parties at her house. I mean, that does seem pretty cool. I mean, so many famous people would be there. Yeah, it sounds amazing, and you get to wear it. But you, uh, yeah, it just it seems like a lot of work, though, too. Like, you're not, like, partying with them. Yeah. You yeah. have to, like, be there before and after. Mm-hmm. So there was – and then there's, like, a rumor that Anna's going to replace Alex Lieberman because he his wife died and he becomes kind of, like, distant from the magazine. Also, did we already say his wife died and he marries her nurse? You and I did, but last one. But we should always repeat that kind of it's info. It's just, like, God damn it. Do you think they were, like, fucking while she was dying? No. You just don't want – you just want to not, that not to be the truth. Like, it's a possibility. I do feel like, okay, I was going to say some personal stuff. Like, I, my uncle and my, my aunt was dying of cancer, and my uncle always had a eye. And I think he definitely fucked the nurse. Mm. I mean, I get it. Like, not that I'm condoning it, but it makes sense. You're, like, sad. And, you know, men love it when women help them not be sad. And you're And she's just, like, being so nice and caring and then you're like oh take care of me too i'm sad boohoo yeah 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 it yeah it is very interesting but you know what i mean more power to them i don't know yeah there's rumors that she's gonna replace him but that's that doesn't happen i'm gonna say the stuff about the internet and vogue.com was like the least interesting part of this book to me i skipped over it all great style.com i was like what name is that does that even exist anymore i didn't google it i don't know there's like yeah there's a website called style.com that's part of Condé nast but then they also want vogue.com but then they're like what goes on vogue.com and anna like wants this vogue to stay relevant so like she wants them to be online like even though she doesn't understand the internet i mean you know it's new like no one understood the internet but Someone said that that the entire purpose of fashion is to be a reflection of the times and that like they think that that's why it really bugged her because she didn't want Vogue to feel antiquated and out of date. So I mean, she's not wrong. And so like at some point, the web things start happening and she gets addicted to the traffic numbers, which like I can relate. To. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, she's also like during this time reinventing the will essentially with the Met Gala and uh, really, like, starts, like, getting more celebrities involved. She's also started having her cover stars agree that they would appear on no other cover while their issue of Vogue was on the newsstand. She's, like, tr- focusing on celebrities being a part of the – like, she's trying to stay on the, the front and front, basically, of what culturally people are expecting, which is celebrities – and that includes the Met Gala and with trying to transition as a website. Um. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she hosts her first Met Gala in 1995. And most people didn't care about the museum. They just wanted to go party. And so later, Anna ensures that every guest walks through the exhibit, which I can really see you doing that if you were <laughs> in that role. <laughs> 
Thank you. I thought that was genius. I was like, yeah, I fucking better look at that shit. Like, yeah, how annoying. How rude. Yeah. And it's also fun to learn. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm alone in that, you know? Well, that's why I stopped going to those like museum at night things. Like those were popular in San Francisco because you'd go and then everyone just wanted to like drink and hang. And I like just wanted to go through the museum without anyone <laughs> trying to talk to me. <laughs> you just want a normal day at the museum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um. Oh, and then her mom dies, and that's, like, how she reunites with Tally, like, after he had left Vogue. Yeah, and, like, she does rehire Tally eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. Um, she trusted him. He was a service of, to her, and she provided an income in hours. He had a great job. So I think she just felt sorry for him. But I'm like, why did she feel sorry for him? I don't understand because this is what the quote said. It's just like sometimes he would be very obliging and other times he would be just rude to her. And she would always look the other way. I'm like, okay. And she would also say, oh, that's Andre. She was so forgiving of him for all those years. It was not that she just felt sorry for him and brought him back. She trusted him. He was a service of her. And she provided an income and hours and he had a great job. I don't like how defensive that is of Anna. I know. And it's not to say that Tally wasn't problematic in his own special little way. I mean, but the the reason he is the way like he got there because of who he was and what he like did. So I think that's giving too much credit to Anna for his job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It seems like he was maybe someone who would talk back to her more or give her more sass. And like because people didn't see her accept that from many people, they they like – thought it was it was wild it was wild so it's coming from a black man a gay a gay fat black man yeah had the audacity who should you know feel lucky to be there yeah people would think exactly um yeah so people were surprised that she rehired him and i'm just gonna be a big defender of andre leon tally forever i mean like of course he wasn't no one's perfect first off like everybody we're just humans trying to survive but you shouldn't have to paint people as being perfect in order to right. be in order to acknowledge that their circumstances were fucked up that like people were prejudiced against them yeah and i just like i i i guess again we're looking through the lens of anna and not andre but i just like want to protect andre at all costs and i just feel like amy should have done a little bit better about it like mm-hmm. she does she it is like it's a little anti-andre it was tense their relationship but like but, but she I, could have she could have shown it more on from both sides. Like, right, right. I think he was hard to deal with, though. I will say that. Yeah. But I still am like, I don't give a fuck. Like, right. It just seems like if someone hadn't read his memoir and if they didn't understand his struggles, they could come away from this like with a incomplete picture. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. She's like, Anna's alive. He's not. So. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna say what I need to say. I guess. Yeah. Um. She Anna can, will go after me if I say anything bad. Yeah. Um. A manager in human resources was perplexed by Anna's decision to rehire Tally, even in a lesser role than before. Why in the name of God did you do that? She asked Anna. Also, okay, whatever. She replied, "It's better to have Andre where you can see him." Again, don't love that. That's so funny. <laughs> like, what is Andre gonna do? I don't right? know. Like, what? Okay. Yeah. Okay, and so Anna hates grunge. She hates, like, the 90s grunge thing that's happening because she wants women to be chicer. But ad pages are up. Things things are good on that front. There's 90s? Also, 
money money just flying pouring we can't even imagine how much money they were like in the 90s it was so lush that employees luxuried in town cars and business class airplane tickets and five-star hotel rooms and had like 29 hamburger like that was just like a normal day in life of like 29 hamburgers 29 dollar hamburgers thank you for (laughs) explaining yes but yeah yeah they also feature a lot of fur in the magazine Oh, yeah, there's a lot of fur. I also want to reiterate, like, everybody's pretty much broke. Like, all the employees aren't getting paid a lot, but they are serfs on the employee, like, credit cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they have a lot of fur. It's just lux- – it's dripping in luxury, basically. And so this was at a time in New York when pretty much anyone could walk into the lobby of most upscale office buildings and ride the elevator without confronting security. So on September 30, 1993, there was nothing stopping protesters from PETA from popping into Condé Nast's headquarters at uh, the address. Um, Kate Pearson, a member of the B-52s, was among the group of eight of them who took to the elevator to the 13th floor, which belonged to Vogue, to stage a protest against the magazine's coverage of fur. The PETA contingent marched through the office blaring bullhorns and sticking anti-fur slogans on the walls. Norman Waterman, who worked on the publishing staff, came down to try to stop them, yelling, get out of here. Editor-at-large William Norwich watched from his glass-walled office as a protester kicked Waterman in the groin so hard that he fell to the floor. Anna's assistant closed her door and stood outside her office while the staff waited for security to come. Eventually, the police took the protesters to Midtown South Precinct, where they were charged with criminal mischief and criminal trespass. So basically, Anna's assistant, like, stand like is gonna save her life they're like standing like go putting their body in between the protesters and her like they do not get paid enough to do that i know i'm this is what i'm saying like it's like yes i think anna is doing a lot of this abusive behavior because there is a power dynamic obviously but i'm also like come on assistants have a backbone say you know what anna you deserve to get slimes by paint but they are they just believe that she is the lord lord and savior of fashion so therefore they need to protect her at all costs they've been brainwashed into it is what i assume yeah because why else would you do that little stockholm syndrome a little bit yeah yeah so people are like not into vogue like it's weird because there was it was so much money happening she was doing well like financially the, the like sales were up but like grunge was really popular anti-fur campaigns were picking up pito was big um, and also they weren't really showing diversity within the pages yet. You know, Oprah was like a big deal. And they had her lose 20 pounds before being on the cover. Of course she did. She was also always yo-yo. Yeah. Uh, dieting at that time. But yeah, I mean. Yeah. Anna doesn't seem super put off by PETA. Like it doesn't get under her skin too much. Oh, she, she loves steak. I mean, like I love steak, but like she talks about how she likes steak a lot. Right, totally. And then at some point, protesters come to her townhouse. She opens the door in her bathroom at 6 a.m. thinking it's her hairdresser because at this point, by the way, she's getting her hair done professionally every morning. Um, But yeah, instead there was graffiti, red graffiti on her stoop covered in paw prints and paint splatters. And so she calls HR to come like remove it and then which is a service I would love if HR provided for me if I could just be like I spilled something can you like send someone to clean it up um but they come and clean it up and they use like a horrible chemical that caused her nanny Lori felt brain injury I don't understand that either I'm like there's more to the story that I'm not understanding we should yeah we should look into it more because I'm like why did they have to use that chemical like why that chemical I know it seems like paint isn't that hard to remove right like I just Got paint off of the cement floor 
with Clorox wipes yesterday. I was just trying to clean the floor and the paint was coming up, but whatever. I, I'm not trying to like shame these people who for not knowing how to clean. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but then, so yeah, so there's a lawsuit against Condé Nast and again, Amy Odell giving a very favorable take on Anna, but apparently Anna's like really upset, not because the lawsuit, but because like her nanny is injured. Brain damage is really shitty. Yeah, I guess you don't want someone who's taking care of your kids to have like a brain injury. <laughs> Absolutely not. Gotta keep her sharp. Yeah, you got to be on your toes. And I don't even know what that brain injury looks like, but that is whatever it is. If if you can, if it's noticeable, it's noticeable, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, she's like dealing with all these conflicts. I mean, she supposedly, like I said, Oprah was a very big deal when it happened, which was like, what, 1997, I think. And she was, Oprah was the second white uh, black woman to ever appear on Vogue. Um, the first being Scary Spice, Mel B, which is a pretty big deal, but she was with all her other white counterparts. Um, in Anna's defense, Amy O'Dell does write that she wanted Naomi Campbell in 1989 to be on the cover, but she was shot down by, like, Condé Nast employees because they were like, you can't put her on the September issue because the September issue is the highest selling issue because oh. she's a black woman, essentially. They won't sell, um, which is inaccurate, but... Yeah, and she finally has somebody else, like another black model, Kai- Kira Kakabukuri. I'll just say a black model in 1997 was issued, and Anna admits to it not being very diverse. Um, but you can talk all you want. It Really, you're in that position. You're making decisions. So you should have more diversity. And Andre Leontali is regularly demanding for it. Another reason why Andre should be saved from, like, I looked more favorably because he was he was support he was asking for it, and Anna was just not providing it. Again, it's not like she has full control this time, but she's been in the position long enough. She has the ability to put more black people on the cover. Yeah, she she wanted people to reach a certain level of celebrity before she put them on the cover. She would quote unquote like wait for the right time, which like you know. There's more to it than that, but that's, like, how she described it. And like you were saying before, it's, like, having celebrities on Vogue really changed what it meant to be a celebrity. Um, And at this time, Vogue would also advise celebrities on what to wear. Vogue, or British Vogue, had done this with Princess Di. And then American Vogue offered this service to Hillary Clinton when she became the first lady. Which, I mean, she didn't exactly become a fashion icon. Like, not at all. I don't think she ever really was. But she sometimes, she's been, she goes to the Met Gala a lot. Which is weird to me. Again, like, what does it mean to be a celebrity? Celebrity means to have, like, some kind of political favor, too. Well, yeah, it's like Anna's trying to get a bunch of powerful people in a room, and she was, like, a huge Hillary supporter. But, um, yeah, and then she put Hillary Clinton on the cover of Vogue after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Which is kind of badass, but also, like, maybe she should have got Monica Lewinsky on the cover. That would have been a badass her move yeah honestly dude. monica Lewinsky was probably on the cover of viva <laughs> <laughs> except that was totally closed down by that right yeah, right yeah, yeah she's getting tight with harvey weinstein because he's understanding how like media is going to impact his like films and he wants anna's approval so it could get his celebrities of the films that he's going to showcase it's it's a relationship that's almost necessary mm-hmm. to build again more content so people can like understand and go to movies basically by the films that they're being sold right right he was like obsessed with winning awards and 
you know, Vanity Fair could be kind of snarky sometimes, but Vogue's mantra was to feature people that were worth celebrating. So like he really wanted his actresses on Vogue covers for that reason. Um, Project Runway, Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein brought in a, the idea for Project Runway. He wanted it to be about models because of course he did. Um, but, you know, he's working with this team on developing the show and they kind of threw in the bit where the designers like choose their models as like a way to kind of satiate him. But like they wanted it to be about fashion designers. Honestly, hilarious because it's like they're like it's there's going to be models in it. And he's like sold. OK, yeah, don't worry, Harvey. There will be objectified women. Um, and Vogue and Elle were both like contenders for this, like they wanted the show to have like the winner get featured in one of these magazines, but Anna basically wasn't interested. She wanted to make the show about um, like the Vogue Fashion Fund, but she, yeah, so Vogue passed on it and she didn't regret it. Also, I just want to say that she, Weinstein would invite Anna to his like film premieres and she would come and watch it with her sunglasses on. She watched. <laughs> She would come and watch it with her sunglasses on and he would have his staff around the theater to be like, what was her reaction? What was her reaction? I'm like, you little freak. But, but no one. Uh, yeah, it is so weird that she would wear her sunglasses while watching a movie. Like, who does that? Like, what is she doing? There's a rumor that it's because she's sleeping. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, but basically no one can see like how she's reacting. And she also, it's like hard for her to even sit through these things. Another reason I relate to Anna, it's like plays. She can like, she she's really hard for her to like sit still through like an entire Thing like this so that makes sense she's a hundred percent sleeping then she's like that she has to leave before anybody gets to her 8 a.m meeting um like she is this is her only time to sleep that's such a good point because like i was saying to you i was like this whole book made me think just like does she do drugs or am i just like way sleepier than her like how does she not sleep it must that must be why she wears the glasses yeah She's like taking mini naps yeah. all day long. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows. She's like, people are scared of her because she's not talking, but really she's asleep for five minutes. Yeah. Oh, man. And then she comes too. Um, I love the idea of someone being like, in you, Anna, and she's just standing there. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll change everything. <laughs> okay. She gets divorced. Yep. And she's having an affair. With this billionaire. Oh, yeah. Shelby Bryan. I'm into this. Their relationship? Yeah, a little bit. They're like hooking up all over the world. I know this book made me really pro affairs for whatever reason. <laughs> I know. They don't tell you any of the sad stuff. It's just like. It doesn't seem like Shoffer was that upset. Like there wasn't a huge fight, it felt like. But I guess it was because. I mean, obviously there was because she talks about at the end of how like she was like trying to get ahead of it by being on a, on the cover of whatever. What was it? What magazine was it? New York Mag? Yeah. She was trying to get ahead of the a media storm of her divorce before anybody could say anything. So I, I'm sure every divorce is contentious in some way. But like it seems like Schaefer was kind of aware of the affair or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It all just seemed, the way it's written, it all just seems so casual. Like, they go out to dinner. Shelby's with his partner. She's with her partner. And they start hanging out. And they're both like, yep, we're married. And then they just, like, start having an affair. Like, yeah, I don't know. He seemed like someone who I would want to hook up with but then feel bad about wanting to hook up with. Like, he's from Texas. He's described as an urbane cowboy. He studied art and history, then law. 
he founded some like cell phone company and then was CEO of a fiber optic network. Yeah, basically really rich. And he's just kind of like, he has no filter, it seems like. Yeah, he's a he's a loose cannon in that way. He got rich because of, you know, dot com shit and then became a billionaire. He has a full head of hair, which I think was attractive to her. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, as we all know, Schaffer is objectively unattractive. And, but like, apparently, Anna and his relationship were pretty smooth sailing in the sense that their domestic life was just like figured her, out. Her and Schaffer. Yeah. Yeah. Their life was like pretty figured out, but... Yeah, she was bored. And she wanted the opposite of whatever Schaffer was. Right. And so this guy's richer, hotter. He does a lot of work with the Democratic Party. He's like spicier. Yeah. Yeah, he's a lot. So he's just like off the cuff. Um, yeah. I mean, Schaffer's a psychiatrist. And so it's like, you know, it's a respectable, well-paid profession. But Shelby Bryan's like in with the mix, you know? He's like... He's definitely Leo. Can you Google if he's a Leo or not? Because he's giving Leo vibes. Like, he's very center of the tension, very in front of everybody, very wants to be the star of the show. And Schaffer is like, please do not acknowledge me. I, I just want to be behind... I want to control everything behind the scenes. Like, he's not a very, like, party person. Okay, for whatever reason, I'm just going with what the first thing that came to my mind. I'm going to say he's uh, an Aquarius. Okay. Okay, also when you type in his name, it says American Futurist. That's spooky. Yeah. I don't like that. That gives me Jeff Epstein. I want to like share my sperm with everybody and then become transhumans. Yes. It, yeah. Okay. March 21. I think that's a Taurus. That is not Taurus energy. He might be a Leo rising then. I, I need to know the time of birth. I need to know his whole chart. I just Googled March 21. Yeah, that's not giving me the information I need. That's Aries. That makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Okay, what do we think Schaffer is? <sighs> Schaffer. Schaffer is... I would say Taurus. Wait, no. He's a little bit of... Maybe a Virgo. I'm going to say Aquarius again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if like... Oh, no. If I Google Dr. David Schaffer, like I don't think it's going to come up as him. Whatever. I don't know his sign. Sorry. No, we're going to fucking figure this out. I'm going to look it up. David, what's his name? David Schaffer. I knew that. <laughs> Why ask? Birthday. I'm going to say psychologist birthday. I wish I could just call Anna and ask. April 20th. What does that mean? Taurus. He's a Taurus. Did I say that? I said Taurus maybe as a, a Virgo. He's giving very like, I like to snuggle and lay down and eat vibes, you know? Um, but he does have a certain drive, but it's not like super, he's not super driven. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's just a normal level of driven. He's like driven by being supportive. Exactly. Literally just making that up. (laughs) I just mean, cause like, it's like he would review the book with her every night, but it's like. I mean, that's super supportive. Are you kidding me? Exactly. That's what I, that's like, yeah. I feel like by the time I opened the book, my partner would probably be asleep, you know, like. Oh, at least all my past partners, who knows? But yeah, that's a, a very Taurus vibe. I love that. It's also like kind of Tauruses are known to like get in patterns with relationships and they're, you know, very chill. And Aries, he definitely gives Aries vibes. I can't believe I didn't guess that. I'm yeah, mad. honestly. Because they're also like good dressers and they will be successful if they want to be successful. Like whatever that looks like. Also, okay. The book says that she and Shelby Ryan never married, but when I look it up online, it says they did get married and that they just got divorced, like in 2020. What? Well, then what? Amy Odell, that seems like a big fuck up. Like, it seems like maybe kind of recent. They're split? Like, Well, then when did they get married? Let's, look, let's double check because this is important. 
They married in 2004. Her and Shelby? That's what it says, married. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, wow. It's like on her Wikipedia page, it talks about her affair with Shelby Bryan. Oh, and then winter split with Bryan in 2020. Yeah, but she said that they've really been seen together in public since 2013. So they're probably over before that. For seven years? Yeah, they haven't really been seen in public for that long. Wow. But they didn't have any kids together or anything. I'm confused. So she, they did get married. Yeah, it doesn't mention them ever getting married. Somebody needs to clarify. Dude, there's too much detail in this Wikipedia page. It says... She rarely stays at parties for more than 20 minutes at a time and goes to bed at 10, 15 every night. I feel like that goes against some of the stuff we read that was like she was a party animal. She often turns her... But that's also... I've, but you assume party animal means that she's staying up getting drunk, but she goes to parties. It probably leaves at 9 p.m. or something. Well, she likes to dance. <laughs> I relate to her again. Like, I feel like I love planning a party and then I want to go to bed after like 20 minutes at the yeah, party. Yeah, 100%. Like, I like the planning part better. But they also talk about how... She, she often turns her mobile phone off in order to eat lunch, usually a steak or bunless hamburger. High-protein meals has been a habit of hers for a long time. What the fuck? Why is that on Wikipedia? That's a good question. Why is that on Wikipedia? I guess because people are obsessed with food and skinny people. Oh, we're obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I, I'm sure she's had more interviews than we think. Yeah, that was from a documentary called Boss Babe. Really? There's a documentary with she's in it? Uh-huh. Oh, bo- sorry. A BBC documentary series called Boss Woman. That's funny. Yeah. How dare you? Boss babe. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I bimbified it. Yes. Where was I? I closed my book by accident and everything went, uh, went haywire. I also want to mention Bill Gates. She has lunch with him and she's like, oh my God, he's so attractive to uh, one of her assistants. And they're like confused because, you know. Because... No, he's not. He's he's just not. But then they realize that she's just like attracted to people who are powerful, which. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Do you got to go? No, no, no. I just need to plug in my I just imagine you'd be like throwing your phone and going upstairs. I don't know. I was like, OK, she's done with the podcast. I just Irish exit this podcast <laughs> yeah, episode. Yeah. You've had enough. I was like very like for that split second. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> But yeah, I just thought that was a little tidbit that I was, again, I think it's funny because like, who thinks Bill Gates is attractive? Like, seriously. Objectively, he's not. Yeah. Okay, so the Met Gala asks Anna to officially chair the Met Gala moving forward. And so in her role, there's like, she has an extensive process of making the guest list. She works with Vogue event planner Stephanie Winston Walkoff, who would send Anna a list of people, and then Anna would cross people off and add more and send it back. And then Walkoff would send out personalized letters to designers asking them to buy tables. And then the designers, like once the table was purchased, the event planner would help them fill it with Anna-approved guests. And... um, the Kardashian reps were calling, trying to get them in, and Anna was like, uh-uh. Yeah, it was all it was the early aughts, right? Like this was the time where it was the Nicole Richie, it was like, what is it called? Simpler Life, or whatever it's called, was out. And so there was these celebrities that were just famous for being famous, um, essentially, as we all know. And Kim Kardashian wasn't quite famous enough, but like it's just she wasn't Anna wasn't there yet to allow people that had gotten famous in the way that they had gotten famous to come into that picture there was a good quote and I need to find it about it but yeah I think I know which one you're talking about where she was like they just haven't done anything to change the world or something like that yeah oh they were um they weren't making a difference they weren't known for making a difference Mm -hmm. which I that's what Anna said I was just like 
what? I guess. But, like, are actresses and actors known to make a difference? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a weird reason. Like, there are certainly reasons you might not want to include a reality TV star, like, in the Met Gala. But, yeah, not that's a weird one. Yeah, it was it, – it is fun. Like, one of the first ones that she hosted, she had a Hilfiger raise the money for the event. And part of the pill of having Hilfiger as the sponsor was the brand's connection to celebrities. Again, her obsession with celebrities – which is very important for the Met Gala to exist as it is now. Um, the company booked for their table like Party of Five star Jennifer Love Hewitt. This is kind of like really early, like this is turn of the century, turn of the century in 2000, who was allowed to bring her mom, but a Hilfiger partner, however, was encouraged not to bring any of his friend, friends or family because it's, it wasn't like as glamorous. They had to like, everybody had to be attractive, basically. And they decided to have Sean Combs and his Puff Daddy at the time to perform um, a bunch of celebrities, his then girlfriend Jennifer Lopez came. The rapper Little Kim wore a studded pink bikini. It was just like, yeah, it was like high society celebrity world entering this new Met Gala. It was very exciting. And the party raised at the time $3 million for the museum. And Anna, however, ended the night in tears. She had barely slept the past two nights. This was supposed to be, after a difficult year, a public divorce, her first public date night with Brian. But he left early. And Tally saw her leaning against the wall and her John Giuliano, which is the guy that said really racist, terrible things, gown with a thick caterpillar of red fox fur around her shoulders, mascara lace tears running down her face. It was not correct for him to make her cry like that in public, said Tally. That was my impression. She was vulnerable. Anna's friend Oscar De La Renta escorted her out to her car. Brian said he didn't even remember making her cry, apparently. But I'm just like, I, I don't know. It's just funny how women can still be, you know, treated like shit by the men that they're in their lives, even if you're powerful. Yeah, it's hard to imagine sometimes, like, her being in these, like, vulnerable situations because she just seems so impenetrable and so stoic. And then she's like, you left, you left early. But yeah. yeah, it seems like it was a really rough time. I think I would cry a lot. It's like something the Met Gala is a big deal. You oh, my want, God. Yeah. And it, you would want the person that you're with to be there all night, with, be with you all night, at least. At least the first one. Right. You want support. Yeah. You want your partner in crime, you know? Yeah. You need your backup, you know? You need someone to be, like, applauding you the whole way. Because, like, I mean, even though I'm not pro-Anna, I mean, that was essentially a night that she reimagined and, like, had a huge hand in. And the person that that loves you should be there the whole time just because they want they respect and care for you and believe in your um, vision, you know, like. But again, Andre's the one saying it. He's the one being like, look, she was really vulnerable. That was rude. What, what other friend of hers is standing up for her? No other. Anyways. Yeah. So Donald Trump was welcome at Vogue events. Oh, yes. This is one of my favorite parts, honestly. At one point, there was like a bidding war between him and Harvey Weinstein for some black Versace dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anna went to host a screening of Baz Luhrmann's film Moulin Rouge, which she had previously honored by putting its star Nicole Kidman on the Vogue. The night was meant to raise money for AIDS charity by auctioning off designer dresses inspired by the movie. So a bunch of rich people were there. And that's when that black Versace dress came up for auction. And it was like had a bunch of like boning in it. Which we now know what boning is. I had to learn what boning was because we went to sewing class. Like the structure of a corset, basically. Right? Yeah. And the boning used to be well bones. Uh, and then so it didn't fit his girlfriend, Melania 
not yet Melania Trump. Yeah, they talk about her a bit in this book, but I didn't really take notes on that because I didn't think it was interesting. I didn't care. I think it's only interesting because how she like turns on Vogue a little bit, Melania does. Oh. Because she's just like, I don't need a fucking magazine when she becomes first lady. Oh. Because Vogue doesn't want to be doesn't want her so she's like well i don't need you you know what i mean because they yeah but we get to the part that every biography or memoir has to have a part about 9-11 according to celebrity memoir book club it's like every memoir they read it's like oh my god i the funniest one to me was um not that they're funny but i don't know it can be funny we it's enough time has gone by i think it's been 21 years Portia what's her name Portia De Rossi Rossi. in her memoir she's like at the time of 9-11 I was like 20 pounds overweight or like you know like something where it's like just uses 9-11 as a marker for her weight which is very sad but also fucking hilarious hilarious. Um, but yeah 9-11 happens and you know they're in New York they're not that far away from it her and Lisa Love um, I can't remember what her role is They're at Vogue and then it happens and they're like, what do we do? And they're like, let's go get the kids. So they drive, they pick up their kids and they all go to Oscar de la Renta's apartment, which is just like such a funny image to me of like that being where her kids hang out. But then she makes everyone go to work the next day. Horrible. Horrible. I mean, I get mad that we still have to work after any any mass shooting in the U.S. But like 9-11 was exceptionally bad, right? Like, I mean, Republicans really were on board with hating it as much as democrats i guess at the time yeah it was a very unifying event i mean and it's not even just that they're mourning it's like they are mourning but it's also like their city is affected like there's a crumbled building like roads are blocked off and they're also scared it's gonna happen again like one of the acts of self-care odell describes is that they start wearing flats to the office in case they have to run out of the building and i wonder if my anna was like these flats how dare they but because she's like she's just not okay she had a facelift at the end of the 2000s she went back to work with like yellow bruises still visible but she wasn't even fully healed so that's where she's at where she's expecting people to come in even if they're bruised physically and emotionally she doesn't give a fuck Mm -hmm. and she doesn't believe in like resting and it was why in the early aughts, her reaction to one senior editor being out of the office for Yom Kippur was to ask in a staff meeting, according to one person present, is she off being Jewish? But this time, it wasn't just about her work ethic. She seemed to believe that if Vogue stopped, if fashion stopped, the world stopped, and the terrorists would win. Yeah, this is like, it's it spurs this conversation about like, what's fashion's role in all of this? And it's like, I mean, there it's why does it have to have a role? Right. It just like cracks me up because during this time, everybody thought they, I mean, any media source was like, it's upon us to carry out the hum- the American spirit. Like SNL had this whole thing. It's just like, Vogue, say the fuck out of it. We don't need you. The terrorists aren't going to win if you stop. Like that's a ridiculous, con- that's a, a, a ridiculous conclusion to come to. Yeah. They already kind of won. So, right. It's like, just imagine them refreshing the Vogue website and then they're like, they're still up and running. Like... <laughs> I guess we lost this one, boys. Osama Bin Laden did have pictures of Kim Kardashian in his little cave. No way. Yeah. I think he had our sex tape. That makes sense. I mean, because he had VHS. Right. <laughs> but like, no, yeah, he had like, I think he was still, like, yeah, he had our sex tape. Dang. 
Wow. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read. Cause it no, was- that's going to be my next fun fact <laughs> at a dinner party. Yeah, you could really say that he had anything and no one ever would believe you. Everyone would be like, whoa, wow. But I mean, he wasn't living a great life. And the fact that we, I don't know why I'm being an apologist for Osama bin Laden. But like the fact that we put everything on him is ridiculous. But well, you need a poster child, you yeah. know, like you need like a face of the, you know, um, yeah, there's a question of like what what role does the fashion industry play in all of this? Um, in the wake of the attacks, it was easy to see a focus on fashion as vain and oblivious to the tra- tragedy that had just occurred. Yet for Anna and many others, fashion at its best represents optimism about the future. And okay, but then like people aren't shopping, I guess like because of a lot of a lot of reasons, but. So Anna puts together a fashion show for up-and-coming designers. People are really interested because, like, being a young designer is super tough. She partners with the Council of Fashion Designers, CFDA, to create an annual fund to help designers um, get off the ground. And then, um, yeah, the first winners are Jack McCullough and Lorezo Hernandez, who created Proenza Schuler. And Hernandez actually, like, encountered Anna in 2000 on an airplane and he's like there with his mom and he's like, mom, that's Anna Wintour. And so she's like, you've got to go talk to her. So he like walks up to her classic Anna, not people not knowing Anna's asleep because he walks up to her and he's like, hello, miss, like blah, blah. blah. And she just like doesn't respond. And he's like, uh, and then, <laughs> once again, she's like totally asleep. Yeah. yeah. And then he realizes she's asleep. So he writes her a note and she wakes up, reads it and connects him to Michael Kors for an internship. So this is one time where I'm like, that's really cool. Anna. It is pretty cool. Um, I guess that didn't really relate to 9-11 super, super hard. It was near 9-11. Yeah, around the same time. But yeah, that was that's where we'll stop. And You're really going to want to tune in next time because we're going to share the tea about the Devil Wars Prada and like the assistant who wrote that book. Yeah. We're going to wrap this up all nice and tight. This is basically a mini series, I guess. Yeah, it 100% is. We're doing a mini series. Congrats to us. I'm glad because reading this book and taking notes. Was a mini series. It took a lot of time. Anyway, we... Wanted to make sure you got all the juicy deets. Check out our TikTok. We'll be kind of like pulling out some stories that we read and doing little bits about them. And, you know, make sure to give us five stars if you like this episode, even a little bit. Even if you're like, it was okay, give us fucking five stars. We're doing this by ourselves. We're editing on the fly. We're learning how to like literally become sound engineers. You should have seen the confusion we had watching a YouTube video today just to learn why we had an echo of that. It was, it's, it's hard out here. It's like, you know how drag queens don't have money before they go on RuPaul and then after they go on RuPaul, how different they look if you're a drag race person. Um, yeah, that's what we're, we're before drag race is what I was saying. Mm-hmm. We're so. like the first season of a show where their outfits are kind of like whatever. And then we want to be season two versions of our sh- of ourselves where it's like all of a sudden we're wearing designer. You're talking about euphoria. I was actually thinking of Gilmore Girls, honestly, not <laughs> not that they ever go designer, but it's like there is a noticeable difference in like their their costuming and their makeup and stuff their budget gets bigger the same with euphoria the season one was like a smaller budget and then season two it's like prada anyways okay bye you guys love Love you. you love you hope